Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Howdy crew, you are listening to episode 20 of the Howie Games Artist Series Part A, featuring former Zimbabwean test cricketer Henry Alonga. Oh, and this one in the air, that's it, one over, Tenduka's out, that's great bowling, great bowling. So Alonga has struck again, he's at it over Tenduka this evening. That is Henry with ball in hand. This is Henry with microphone in hand. What a voice Henry has. Talk about a multi-talented customer. But for all Henry's skill on the cricket field and his musical talent, it's a stand that Henry took on the world stage for something he really believed in. That, for mine, will be his greatest legacy. This is an episode really close to my heart because Henry, in many ways, is what the pod strived to be from the very start. Something to make you think, something to inspire you, to share with your family and friends and to give you a lift. By the way, Henry has just released an audio book titled Blood, Sweat and Treason, his voice. As he details his story, it is a magnificent thing. Get it wherever you get your audio books. From a very tough international cricket debut to standing up to oppression, death threats, starring on The Voice and so much more, this is the story of a truly remarkable man. Henry Alonga. Enjoy and share. Welcome to the Howie Games Artist Series, a man that fits this perfectly because he has played international cricket and he has a voice to make you stop in the street. His name is Henry Alonga and it is a great thrill to welcome him to the Artist Series. Henry, it's wonderful to see you. How are you, mate? Hey, Howie, it's great. It's great to meet you Um, and uh, it's a real thrill for me to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, as a man that played cricket for Zimbabwe, then lived in England, now lives in Australia, this will come out and the result will be long done. But currently, Australia is playing Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe are five for 66 and in early trouble. Does your heart still hold a soft spot? Are you cheering for the Zimbos or for the Aussies, Henry? Well, the first thing I'll say is that feels like very familiar territory for Zimbabwe. <laughs> <laughs> um, Even back in the day when I played, I remember playing in a match against uh, Sri Lanka where I think we got bowled out for 36 or something in Colombo. Uh, um, Mr. Chaminda Vass uh, Ah. got most of the sticks. So very familiar territory. Um, Look, Australia's been really, really good to me. Um, Of course, I'll always have a nostalgic leaning towards Zimbabwe. It's where I grew up. It's where uh, I I went to school. It's where I played cricket, of course. So... There's always a, an element of patriotism that comes from having represented a country in a sport. Um, and I guess that never leaves you, but um, Australia has really adopted me well. I love this nation. I love uh, I love the way you play your sport, of course. And uh, generally, it's a weird feeling for me to support Australia because I know you're going to win most of the time. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of getting used to that. Henry, there's so much to talk about with you. I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time in Africa, especially as a young man traveling. And then I've taken my my father and I've taken my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and 
couple of years ago, we took our kids as well to South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe. But one of my fondest memories, Henry, I spent a long time, nine months, backpacking through and hitchhiking through Africa from north to south. And one of my fondest memories was in Harare. I was staying in a hostel and I spent three days in a car park out the back playing what we call backyard cricket with Englishmen, Zimbabweans, Kenyans, Namibians, South Africans. And I can still remember we had the taped up tennis ball and I didn't understand the love for cricket in your part of the world until I first arrived there. Three days, we did nothing. We could have gone and seen the sights and we just played cricket. That's fantastic. Um, Of course, cricket's a relatively new sport in Zimbabwe. And uh, when I say relatively, what I mean by that is we only got test status in uh, around about 92, if I'm not mistaken. At least that's when we played our first test match. Um, And you're looking at about, what, 20, 30 years mm. of history. It wasn't until the late 90s that, or early 2000s that cricket was broadcast on our national television carrier. Wow. Um, so, so cricket really wasn't in the culture. It certainly wasn't amongst the black people of, 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 of Zimbabwe because up until then it was a, a privileged sport of the elite. You, you know, you had to, to get to play cricket, you'd have had to play in high school, or, or even junior school, um, work through to play for a club, and then of course maybe higher representation from there. But it was it was hard. It was diff- a difficult and expensive sport to get into, um, and so I, I think it's wonderful that the sport has spread to the level where you're getting kids playing it on the street. I mean, I obviously played cricket f- for a number of years for Zimbabwe, travel around the world, and that's what we used to admire traveling to other nations is yeah. seeing the energy and passion for the sport that seemed to be carried by the sort of uh, the sort of average citizen of the country, just a love for it. And we didn't have that until fairly recently. And when I say fairly recently, I'm talking about when TV started to carry our matches. So 20-odd years, that's it. Well, that, that's what it would have been. It probably was 20 years ago. I remember on, on the third day, um, I was meant to be heading off to Wangi to the National Park, and I put it back a day because the cricket was so intense <laughs> and, and so much fun. It was It's such a fond memory for me. So that, that's one of the reasons why I'm pumped to talk to you. Yeah, well, mate, those are, those, are, those are stunning memories, which, you know, they're very hard to recapture. I mean, I've travelled all over the world. I've travelled around this nation, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, you name it. And I think there's nothing more endearing to, than seeing young people with smiles on their faces playing competitively. I mean, you've got to be careful with the rules, you know. It's got to be like six and out. If you hit it onto the road, you're out, or, you know. And if you break a window, you're definitely out. But um, it, it, I, I, I certainly, um, I, I obviously, and we'll discuss this later, but I obviously had the privilege of playing uh, proper cricket with proper gear and not just on the street with a with a piece of wood and a, and a you know taped up tennis ball um so i was privileged to to be able to experience and i and i had a father who was able to buy me proper gear but for so many world stars that is their start yeah you know, they just fell in love with the sport playing on the streets with some random Aussie who came <laughs> on a <laughs> well, that, tour. And that's what it was. That, that's what it was. Um, you talked about your, your father bought your gear. I'd love to know a bit about your family history, but firstly, I, I so often ask the cricketers that come on this show, my, my young fella, he's 10, um, he just got a new kookaburra. The season's about to start and you take it out of the wrapper and he started to knock it in and he's got the oil yeah. and it's, Dad, is it ready? Is it ready for the nets yet? It's such a, it's such a beautiful thing for people that have been involved in cricket. 
cricket. What's the first cricket bat memory you have? Can you remember your first bat? My first cricket bat of note that I can remember was gifted to me by one of our senior players. He was, I think he was playing for the country at the time and I'd formed a rapport with his, his younger brother who was um, the captain of my school cricket team. His name was Donald Campbell. And Alistair Campbell was his oh. older brother who played overseas. And uh, he'd kind of obviously accumulated a whole different range of cricket bats and had too many. And I saw this SS Jumbo. Oh, the um, Viv Richards SS just, Jumbo. Yeah. <laughs> at his house when I went uh, for a cricket festival, because uh, I used to stay with him. They were very, very wonderful. They were wonderful hosts. Um and and I, I, he could see me salivating over it and said, you can have it. And I was like, what? <laughs> Come on. So he gave me this bat. And um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, although it was an SS Jumbo, it, it, it was, he put um, these stickers on, which were green. And I think they, they had 3D written on them. Right. I've no idea what company that was or what brand that was. But I, so it was known as a 3D bat, but obviously it was an SS Jumbo. And I scored my first hundred with that bat. Uh, it could just, it was the sweetest thing. Um, it could hit the ball a mile and uh, it was nice and light and very well balanced as well. It's the best bat I've ever had. Sadly, it broke uh, maybe in my last year of school, but uh, that was my first bat and my first, um, uh, I guess my first steps into owning gear that was um, pretty, pretty professional and could get you the result. You'd get value for runs. Um, in addition, my first boots uh, came through my dad. I was starting to play quite well, and I was playing for the province as well as a school kid, and or state, as you call them here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I didn't have any good bowling boots. In fact, when I started, we used to play with what we call tackies, but you'd call them trainers yep. here in Australia, um, just cross trainers. Um, and, and I was starting to sort of make headway in my career, and my, my, my coach told me, you need some proper gear, son. And so... I spoke to my dad and he organized uh, some money in his UK bank account and he got me some uh, pigskin bowler's boots that went up to your ankle. And that was <laughs> that was probably, again, one of the more sort of um, defining moments of my career because now I was running in with proper boots, feeling good on the ground as I landed and as I ran around and looked the part as well. Which they always say, even if you can't play cricket, my coach used to say, if you can't play, at least look like a cricketer, have your long sleeves, tuck your shirt in. Henry, tell me, where, where were you actually born? And tell me a bit about your family history, if you don't mind. Well, it's interesting you mentioned your trip to Zimbabwe and, and, and the surrounding nations. Well, a lot of those nations had something to do with my upbringing. So I was actually born in Zambia. Oh, so you were born is, in, in, like in Lusaka or? Yes, okay. yes, I was born in Lusaka. 1976, my, uh, my mom was a nursing sister. My dad was a doctor. They'd met in the hospital. Huh. Um, my brother was born in 74, Victor. Uh, he's two years older than me, of course. And uh, then I came along in 76 and we moved to uh, Kenya, perhaps when I was about two or three. To Nairobi or uh, somewhere else? To Nairobi, Kenya, yeah. Okay. So my dad my dad was Kenyan and my mom was Zimbabwean. And they, like I said, they met in the hospital, so they were both foreigners in Zambia. Um, in any case, my uh, dad moved us back to Kenya, and that was a fatal error on his part because uh, when my mom and the family landed there, uh, after a while she discovered that there were little kids running around who looked a bit like my brother and I. Right. And on making inquiries, she discovered that my 
dad had been married before to another lady called Prisca. Uh, he'd had 10 children with her. Um, and uh, he'd never divorced her when he married my mum. So That's a fair um, effort to keep 10 other kids under wraps. Yeah, mate, it never came up in conversation, so she, he didn't mention it. <laughs> right, as <laughs> so, you don't. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so that was obviously quite wow. a, a bit of a shock for my mom. She would never have married a married man. And uh, that that led to their the, the sad demise of, of their union, and my mom decided to head back to Zimbabwe. And Dad obviously was obviously saddened that the relationship had come to an end, and yes. he took us with him to Zimbabwe to try and reconcile. Um, and that didn't work, but so began my life in Zimbabwe. They moved on and met other people and had children with others. Um, and that's that's quite a an important point or juncture in my life because it meant that I was living between two homes, and I guess the most elegant solution for them was to send me off to boarding school. And of course, boarding school is where I was introduced to all these wonderful sports that I've played in my life and, you know, the culture and the music, the drama, all of that came because I went to a very, very good set of boarding schools. One was called REPS, which stood for Rhodes Estate Preparatory School. The other was called Plumtree. But it it really came down to my parents splitting up from, you know, when I was about four or five. I see. And, and, and were, the, was the schools, were the schools in Harare or were they somewhere else in Zimbabwe? No. So I don't know if you ever got down to Bulawayo. Yeah, I did. But, yeah, I caught uh, the train. I caught the train. Oh, well, wow. And you actually arrived. I'm surprised. Yeah, maybe late. <laughs> I could have been late, but I got there. <laughs> yes. So um, um, Zimbabwe had a number of provinces and, and Matabililand was the the province I grew up in, Mashonaland was the main province with yes. the capital city. I'm saying that for the benefit of your listeners. No, of course, absolutely. You know where they are. Um, and so I grew up in the second largest city, if you will, in the second largest province. Or maybe not largest necessarily, but certainly most significant. Um, and my my schools were both away from the city. So my junior school reps, which stood for Rhodes Estate Preparatory School, um, was about 32 k's from the city, and my high school Plumtree was about 100 k's. So we were in the bush. We were uh, in rural uh, Zimbabwe, and uh, uh, but I had a, I had a wonderful education. They were they were good schools, though. At what stage does music come into your world? This is. I've been blessed to do this is the second series of the artist series Henry where we get people on that have have a background in sport and and music when does music and singing and I know you've got a guitar there behind you does that come to you at school or did you have musical families was there music at home no not really I I think when I say not really I mean my home environment wasn't that musical we didn't have a piano or a guitar or anything like that um, my dad didn't venture into music, neither did my mom. I mean, they, you know, they they used to sing around the house, but uh, I wouldn't exactly say that I got any influence from them. Most, if not all of it, came from school. Um, and by the way, I being a 76er, I was a young boy in the mid-sort of 80s when uh, music was taking on this whole new persona because you could buy a Walkman 
and yeah. you know ha- carry the music around with you on a tape or you could record it off the radio. I know it's illegal or was. <laughs> the kids listening but- to this are going to go, what's a Walkman and what's a tape? That's what my kids will be saying, but we're getting uh, old, Henry. We're getting old. Yeah, we are. We are. <laughs> but it was there was a time when you had to listen to music just on the radio. And, of course, my, my initial love for music would have come from the radio and television. Um, a lot of great black artists, Lionel Richie, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson... <laughs> Later on, Whitney Houston and, of course, Mariah Carey, Boys to Men. All those sorts <laughs> of artists had an impact. And, and I'm not discounting any of the other music we played, but, you know, pr- predominantly a lot of the black American artists had a cultural influence on, on us growing up. We had one major radio station. I think it was Radio 3 that played Western music. Um, the other stations played a lot of the indigenous music, which I didn't really buy into. It wasn't really my cup of tea. But that was my first grounding in music. The fact that I, I fell in love with the idea of listening to music. And I've seen that. I've sort of passed that love for music to my kid, to my, my eldest child, Talika, who loves uh, just spending hours listening to music. Um, and so it was that I went to school. I went to reps. And at reps, I think I auditioned for every single play. Did you? Um, and got left out of every single one. <laughs> so so I don't know if they were trying to say I was rubbish or something, but they just never picked me. So uh, when I went to high school, I decided I wanted to be in the play. And by the way, when I say the play, again, I'm showing my age here. We used to do that old-fashioned um, type of musical. So we were doing The King and I. Right. Say goodnight and mean goodbye. The sound of music. We we did a version of Greece, and and so that was junior school, high school. We got even more traditional, um, and I'm kind of getting ahead of the story. But but a lot of the the plays we did were the old fashioned operetta. So we did while I was there for six years. We did Oklahoma. <laughs> We did the gondoliers uh, in my second year of school. We did Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, then a play called Salad Days, then Annie Get Your Gun, and then the Pirates of Penzance. But when I arrived, um, of course, I thought this is my opportunity. I'd, I was already known as a sportsman by then. I was an athlete. I was running fast times, jumping long distances, heights, etc., throwing the cricket ball as it was back then, you know, 80 meters or something stupid. Um, and so... Uh, the music was an aspect of my life I wanted to explore, and so I auditioned for the play. Um, the lady who was doing the audition uh, was a lady called Felix Westwood, and Felix, I, I'm not sure what age she was, but she might have been in her 50s when I arrived, and she'd been at the school for 20-something years. So very experienced, uh, but a stern-looking lady and, and very strict, and she got all of us Form 1 boys, which is your first year of high school, mm-hmm. um, to audition she got us in a group we sung off a sheet of paper and then she tested our ranges and then she got us to sing um as soloists and after i sung as a soloist i saw her write my name down and i thought yeah my wow. first play wow yes i'm in except she told us to go and look at the net- the notice board a few days later and uh, i discovered a couple of things that wiped the smile off my face the first was that the play they were doing that year was called oklahoma and of course, if you know anything about Oklahoma, it's in, it's in the deep south. Yes. 
Yes. And it makes any any young black man a little nervous to be yes. in a play about the Deep South. And the second thing I discovered is that in a boys-only school, when they do a play like that, they've got to find the girls from somewhere. <laughs> so my first selection in any play was as part of the girls' chorus in Oklahoma. Now, the story doesn't end there, Howie. Please go on, after, Henry. You've got me. You've uh, got me on the after doing After doing about five performances or so, and after the final performance uh, for the parents on uh, our big sports weekend where we had the sport, the athletics, and then the final play in the <laughs> evening, um, I, I was taking my makeup off, and uh, I had so much makeup on, I think I should have should have been in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, not Oklahoma. <laughs> um, but the second thing is, um, this lady who was helping me take my makeup off, the same lady who auditioned us, Felix, uh, she was, you know, she had a bit of ball of cotton wool and some makeup remover, and she just couldn't stop giggling. I said, ma'am, what's so funny? She said, Olonga, I hate to tell you this, but you're categorically the ugliest girl we've ever had in any play. <laughs> now, mate, that's 20-something years worth of plays. And she reckoned I was the ugliest. So That's a great story, Henry. So as you can imagine, that was the last time I auditioned as a girl for any play. After that, I told myself, or I became a self-proclaimed tenor rather than a treble, and I joined the choir stalls as a treble in the third term of that year. And by the next year, I was given a principal role. I was Marco in the gondoliers. Um probably the most colourful performance of the gondoliers because, of course, in the play you've got a couple of brothers and I was uh, one of them. I, uh, my brother in the play was Giuseppe. He was six foot tall huh. uh, and, and, a, and a white kid, so I have no idea how we were brothers. Maybe <laughs> maybe mother had some explaining to do, you know. <laughs> so, so, so anyway. So on, on, on that, Henry, at this point um, I can I can throw to a clip of YouTube or I can find some music of you singing to people to gain an early understanding about the talent you have or you, if you wish, it's completely up to you, can pull something from your mind from singing at that stage or any time to just give people an understanding of the voice you have. I, I'm completely in your hands here and I don't want to make you uncomfortable in any way. Anyway, I'll try. I'll, I'll just give you a line. I'll give you a line of the... Um of the, the, the song, the song that got me the principal role... Please do. ...is a song called Take a Pair of Sparkling Eyes. So the the only reason I got picked to play that role, and I had many more principal roles after that, uh, was because I was the only kid in the school who could reach, reach the top note in Take a Pair of Sparkling Eyes. Okay. Um, I'm not going to try this morning. It's too early. Yes. My voice is gruff. But it goes, take a pair of sparkling eyes, hidden ever and anon, in a merciful eclipse. Do not heed their mild surprise, having passed the Rubicon, take a pair of rosy lips. Of course, if people want to hear more, they can come and hear me in concert. <laughs> Which we um, will get to. Henry Alonga, the first live <laughs> performance on the podcast. Hold that thought for a moment. I, I have a couple of, and thank you for that, um, you are a star. I have a couple of young children, Henry, a 12-year-old 
girl and a 10-year-old boy. And whoever's most connected to the guest, they ask a question. Now, it's reasonably early on in the podcast, but my daughter, his name is Sky. She is 12 and she has an interest in music. Her nickname is The Pickle. So you'll hear her calling herself The Pickle. But this is her question for you if you're happy to take it, Henry. I'm happy to take it. Let's go. Hi, Henry. Pickle here. I saw you on The Voice a couple of years ago and you were amazing. Anyways, from my experience, singing is quite hard. So what I want to know is have you always been a natural singer or have you had to work really hard at it? Well, thank you, Pickle, for that question. Um, I think, like anything in life, um, there needs to be somewhat of a little bit of a seed of of ability. So gifting, talent, call it what you like. And that's God-given. You know, some people will just never run fast, no matter what they do, because their bodies just don't have the right balance of muscle tone, etc. Um, same with fast bowling and same with singing. There's got to be something there. Some people are just born tone deaf, and no matter how they hear the note in their heads, it just comes out wrong. Mm. So I think it's fair to say I had that something. I had um, the ability to hear a note and sing it, and I was there and thereabouts. Um, The rest of the story is all about inspiration and hard work. But I think, you know, as a young person starting out in music, I I think I would say to Pickle, just first of all, you've got to find an inspiration, and then you've just got to have fun with it. You know, you just got to have, you just got to try and and, and put yourself out there, perform a little bit. Yeah, it might be nerve-wracking, but over time you'll get better. You'll learn how to control the nerves. You'll also learn what makes people have a great reaction. Um, so just enjoy it, love it, and but push yourself. Back to Henry shortly. Next up on the Artist Series, a truly incredible performer, Anthony Kalia. Ladies and gentlemen, I love the episode. Listen to it next week, please. It is an episode that deserves a large audience. Listen with your kids, listen with your loved ones. Just listen. Like, I think very differently. I'm still the same person, but I, f- I think differently because of the influences around me and the people around me. And I love that because it's about evolving and not limiting yourself. Um, but yeah, just be extremely kind to yourself because I wasn't in my 20s. I was not kind to myself. And I literally put everyone else before me in a work scenario, in a friendship scenario. Like, I, in my early 20s, like, yeah, I came off idle. I was making really good money. And I realized that the people around me didn't actually have my best interests. A lot of them in a professional situation didn't have my best interests because they just saw me as a cash cow, mm. which is fine. I get it that part of what I do is a business. But as a 21, 22, 23-year-old, I didn't think like that. That is Anthony Clear next week on the Artist Series. Alrighty, let's get back to Henry. So music's going nicely, but you are a what I would describe as a tearaway quick. Henry bowled with real wheels, and as a very young man, you play your first test match for Zimbabwe. 1995 as an 18-year-old, the youngest man to ever play test cricket for Zimbabwe. At the time, absolutely. So, and, w- and yes. were you the first? Um, I was the first black player. Yes. So you were the first black player to ever play Test cricket for Zimbabwe. And was that was that a big deal at the time, or was it just a natural evolution of what was happening in your country? 
Well, I think it's uh, it, it's the answer is yes to both questions. It yeah. was sort of uh, it was both of those things. It was it, it was quite uh, quite a large step in progress because um, up until then, cricket. When I say then, I mean ninety five when I made my debut. Cricket had been an elite sport. It was it was very difficult, as I mentioned earlier, to get into it. Not so much that the schools made it tricky, but the clubs did. Really? So, you know, it, it wasn't a professional sport and you needed to have means to get into the clubs. And I don't want to be unkind to anyone in Zimbabwe, but Zimbabwe came out of um, a history of segregation. Yes. So if, if if your listeners don't understand what I mean by that, if they can think of apartheid in South Africa, we had something similar. And in a nutshell, um, black people moved and lived in certain areas and or suburbs, which were generally high-density areas. You had a lot of people living in small spaces, and they didn't really have the luxuries of life. Um, you didn't certainly didn't have big sports clubs that were you know well manicured, and and you need that for cricket. You need a good green. You need a groundsman. Mm. He needs to have the know-how. You need all of that. Uh, notwithstanding the cost of playing cricket, but. Um, if you went to the to the white suburbs, they would have their bowling greens, uh, lawn bowls, that is, and they'd have their cricket clubs, which were very colonial, very traditional, and very uh, protected and um, exclusive, if you will. But when I made my debut, yes, I was the youngest. Yes, I was the first black player. And we played Pakistan, the world champions at the time, at least in world cricket, uh, the one-day format of the game. Um, and... Uh, uh, you can imagine the euphoria and the the mm. excitement around that trip. We had Wazim Akram coming, Salim Malik, Waka Yunus, I think, had injured his lower back, so he wasn't on that tour. But we had that great team that had beaten England in the World Cup of 92 coming to little old Zimbabwe. Uh, a lot of excitement socially as well because there were these rumours that I was going to be picked. And... Yeah, on making my debut, there was a tremendous, a tremendous amount of uh, media interest as well. I remember a man called Jeffrey Dean, who was a, a correspondent for the, I think the, the Daily Telegraph back then, coming to uh, a sports festival I was playing in, uh, in 1994. So mm-hmm. I was in my last year of school at, at this national schools cricket meet. And he came and he was already sort of following the the murmurs that I was going to make my debut. And he did a wonderful article about about how I was this Kenyan kid who was... His dad wanted him to run for Kenya because I was I was an athlete mainly and a cricketer second. Yes. Um, and, and how I was about to make my debut. So there was all that anticipation. And, of course, it all went pear-shaped when I actually did make my debut. Because um, although you mentioned that I had wheels or speed, pace, yes. Yes. which was the reason they picked me, um, I, I didn't have accuracy, Howie. Um, I was very fast, but the ball could go anywhere. <laughs> but the theory being, Henry, if the bowler doesn't know where the ball's going, there's no way the batter knows. You got it, buddy. You got it. Um, um, so I was picked because I was fast. Um, and I don't know what a, how quick I was bowling back then. But I was also struggling with bad technique and injury. I had a lower back issue that I'd been struggling with for a number of years. But... Uh, what a privilege to walk out onto the field uh, to play the world champions with my buddies whom I'd played against and with uh, 
guys like Andy Flower, Grant Flower, Heath Streak, and many others, Guy Whittle. Um, I remember walking out. We'd actually won the toss and batted first, and we made a ridiculous score. We made 530 or 40 or something like that against Pakistan, the world champions. Um, So either that was the most, I always jest that that was either the most amazing batting display by Zimbabwe. Uh, Grant Flower scored a double, Andy scored a hundred, Guy Whittle scored a hundred and everyone else chipped in. We declared, um, and I jest that it was either the best batting display by Zimbabweans or the most blatant match fixing (laughs) that the world's ever seen. We're not sure which one it is. (laughs) But then, then, then you got ball in hand and got an early wicket. So your first test wicket yeah. as a tear away quick. But before we get to my first wicket, yeah. we've got to get to my first ball. Oh, right. So, this is your first ball in test cricket. So remember that part where I said I didn't know where the ball was going to land, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, so my first my first delivery in test cricket, this is after all the hoo-ha yeah. of everyone, you know, giving me this rousing welcome, standing ovation, handing over of the green cap and all that. Everyone's waiting with bated breath as I stand at the top of my mark, 30 metres away, charging in and hurling the ball about three metres down the leg side. Um, <laughs> for four wides. Four wides. Four wides. First ball four in wides. test cricket. <laughs> First ball. Hey, I announced my my intro with a bang. Anyway, um, I then bowled a bouncer with my second ball to um, Saeed Anwar. Now, wonderful cricketer. W- what a graceful bat. Yes. Um, and he ducked and, and there were a few oohs and ahs from the crowd, which was lovely. Um, kind of egged me on. And then I got a wicket with my third delivery. Wow. So now it's one of those where, Howie, I honestly didn't deserve a wicket off that ball. I bowled better balls in test cricket and had no reward. But that, that ball ha- was down the leg again. It was swinging out. It, it, it had... No reason to get a wicket, but Anwar kind of flinched. He played at it, got a little bit of inside edge on it, and uh, uh, I half appealed. I wasn't sure if it hit his pad or his bat. So in a sense, uh, disappointingly, I didn't sort of jump up in the air and have this big appeal. I sort of made a polite inquiry, but everyone else behind the wicket appealed nice and loud. And if, if I'm not mistaken, our umpire might have been Merv Kitchen. Um, anyway, his finger went up. And uh, that was my first wicket with my third ball. Wow. Um, but the story doesn't end there, Howie. No, no, it, like I know many it doesn't. things, there's more to come. Yes, so, but, like, but like wait, most of your stories, more. Henry, we just sort of wind into it, and they continue <laughs> to wind up and up, which is why you're such a good guest. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a number of other things happened. The first thing is uh, Inzimam Ul Huck, mm. uh, top edged. So I was down at fine leg. Um, now, bear in mind, I'm still a young kid. Um, I haven't, I'm not used to the ball going a mile in the air and judging it, running in, catching it. This so, doesn't sound good, Henry. <laughs> so, so top edge, and I left very late. Um, and long story short, the ball ends up dropping five meters in front of me, and you can imagine the uh, the terror that I had to experience from my teammates. Hats thrown on the ground, expletives, <laughs> you name it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is is I got, I, I tore, I think, uh, an intercostal muscle. Um, sort of, as I said, I was injury prone. I wasn't fit. I was stri- straight out of school. We didn't do weights. We didn't do 
uh, extensive uh, preseason preparation. So I was, I was injury prone. Anyway, I injured myself. Um, and, and then the, 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 uh, the third thing that happened is about maybe four or five overs into my spell, Salem Malik had started to get into the ear of our local umpire, a man called Ian Robinson, and he kept muttering and muttering. And cutting a long story short, Ian Robinson, about into my fourth or fifth over, I can't remember, called me for throwing. And for people that aren't familiar with the game of cricket, if a bowler is called for throwing, it's a devastating situation for any bowler. It's only happened a certain amount of times in test yep. cricket. So what happened? How, how does that make you feel, Henry? So... um well, a number of things happened. First of all, it meant that if I got called again, um, I think, gosh, I, I should know my laws, but I think you can't get called more than twice. So if you get called twice, the third time you got to get taken off. Yeah. So you can imagine how embarrassing this is. I've made my debut. I'm making history. I'm representing my people. Uh, people are looking up to me and thinking, wow, what a great moment in history. And I then go and tarnish it by effectively not knowing how to bowl. Now, I just need to give a little bit of background. There may have been questions around my technique all throughout my schooling, especially when I started to get really quick. Um, maybe the odd ball, you know, eh, maybe. Maybe there's a little bit of yep. uh, flexion. So um, I, I'm not one of those guys. Um, there are a lot of people from other countries who deny they throw, and I reckon they do, but we won't touch that. In any case, um, I then went off at a, at a break, I don't know if it was tea or lunch or something, but um, a man came up to me, and I think he meant well. Uh, I've no idea what he was trying to achieve, but I knew his son. His son had been the Zimbabwe school's cricket captain, and uh, he'd been like uh, at my school, and I knew him, and I, I didn't know his dad that well, but his dad was coming to me to try and encourage me, I guess. Um, and he said to me, um, do you know, Henry, that the last person who got called for chucking 32 years ago never played for his country again. Oh. And I thought, I thought, wow, I, I don't know if that's a, a compliment or, or I don't know if you're encouraging me or discourage. Wow. I wasn't sure what to do. But I took it um, as a challenge that I certainly wouldn't be the sort of first player to make his debut as the first black player and then sort of ride into the sunset forgotten with a sort of... Um, the, the underlining of my life being that I, I was called for throwing and never seen again. So um, from there, and I just need to say, Zimbabwe won the test match. Um, we bowled them out twice. We made them follow on. Heath Streak and a guy called David Brains and a few others just bowled so superbly and ended up winning that match for us. But I, I of course, had to go off in disgrace and try and deal with this issue of uh, a wonky technique. So... I was I was privileged enough to to be able to travel around the world and fix my bowling action after that. From then on, for another five or so years, I became a more or less regular feature in the Zimbabwe team. That is the end of Henry Alonga Part A. We're only just warming up. So Part B is waiting for you right now. <laughs>